This morning, our study of the various ordinances given to the Israelites by God continues. As I said at the end of last week's study, given that these ordinances were intended to govern a very unique people during a very unique time in redemptive history, I think it best that we simply read through them, at least through verse 9 of chapter 23, and make only the briefest comments along the way. Uh, This really doesn't require a great deal of in-depth exegesis or in-depth explanation. Uh, So read with me beginning at verse 1. Here the Lord says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now why the difference between restitution here? Uh, Why is there a difference between uh, the ox and the sheep with regard to what should be done by way of recompense should one steal these things? Well, it's simple, really. Oxen were rarer and far more valuable than sheep, so the penalty for stealing an ox uh, was to be greater than that for stealing a sheep. It's just a matter of availability and usefulness between the two animals. Verse 2. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he sold is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Let me just provide another quick clarification here. If a thief was caught breaking into someone's home at night, uh, meaning that the homeowner would have no way of understanding what his intentions were, you know, someone breaks in at night, it's dark, you can't see, you don't know whether they have a weapon to kill you with, you're really uncertain. In those types of uh, situations, the homeowner had the right to kill the thief. And I kind of chuckled when I read here that if that happens, the thief is not to be guilty, right? I don't know that that's really what's being conveyed here. I think it it simply means what we mean here in Texas when we talk about justifiable homicide. There's no blood guiltiness on the person who kills the thief who broke in during the night. Now, in some cases, Thieves were bold enough to break in during the daytime. In other words, they, and we're seeing that more and more uh, today, especially when there's no deterrent to the crime that we see so rampant, in, especially in big cities. Uh, people are brazen enough sometimes to break in and steal things from you during the daylight. Now, if that happens, the homeowner doesn't necessarily automatically have the right to kill the thief. In that case, if the homeowner is able to see that the thief is just coming in to get stuff and not coming in with murderous intent, then it's a different scenario altogether. If that person is caught stealing during the daytime, uh, he or she is required to make restitution. If the thief was poor and had no way to make restitution, there was a provision for him to be sold and his debt paid off in service to his master. It's really just another form of indentured servitude. We've talked about that. 
many of the settlers in this country back in the 17th century, the early part of the 17th century, uh, with uh, Jamestown, for example, were brought over here as criminals. And part of their penalty for the crimes they committed over in the old world was to uh, pay for those crimes by doing various jobs here in the new world. And this is really kind of a type of indentured servitude as well. So if a guy broke in and stole things and he was caught, then he would have to work that off uh, some way. If the thief came to steal things and then had aspirations of making money off of those things, then he was to pay double for what he stole, right? Now, what would be the difference between that and not having the intent to sell the things? Well, sometimes people steal because they really have legitimate needs. It's still wrong, and they need to pay for that, but not double, because the double comes in only when the thief is intending to make money off of what he has stole. Well, the rest of this, down to verse 14, is fairly straightforward. Let's just read it together, beginning at verse 5. If a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it's stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, uh, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, that is, the person's able to identify this as their own, this is what he stole, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and his owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. But if it's actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it's all torn to pieces... Let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it's injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it's hired, it came for its hire. That's a lot, right? But it's really not so complicated. I think the overarching teaching here is... First and foremost, that God is a God of extreme detail, right? That God, in his helping the Israelites to govern themselves, gave them very specific instructions so that they would be able to live in peace with each other, so that they would uh, not experience any of those gray areas. Uh, this pretty much covers everything that, at least during that time frame, could have or would have happened in the realm of possessions, in the realm of uh, agricultural beasts of burden, and so on and so forth. And again, God's being very meticulous here. The, the thing that's being delineated here is uh, instances of accidental loss versus negligence. 
If a man is watching another man's animals and one of them gets hurt through no fault of the man, then an oath before the Lord was to be made and no restitution was to be paid. In other words, accidents happen, right? If I uh, borrow an ox from you and a bolt of lightning strikes and kills the ox, I don't have to pay for that. It's clearly not my fault, right? Uh, If a wild beast comes out of the jungle and jumps on your animal that I've borrowed and rips it to pieces, as long as I can prove that the pieces are there and that I didn't do it, then I don't need to make restitution because, again, it was considered an act of God. Uh, It's interesting that a lot of our insurance policies today operate along the same types of principles. There are accidents, and then there are acts of negligence. There are things that are not our fault. There are things that are our fault. This is how we differentiate between full uh, comprehensive coverage and liability coverage, right, even in our insurance. We do that, again, so that we can ensure peace among our neighbors, as well as having a way to rectify these situations whenever they arise. But note an exception in verses 14 and 15. When an animal was borrowed and it was injured or died, if the owner was not with it, the one borrowing it had to make restitution. Why? Well, this is, again, not necessarily an accident. This is something that is based on negligence. If I borrow an ox from you and you tell me um, this oxen can't work more than eight hours a day, especially given the heat, given the environment, don't work this oxen more than eight hours a day, and I choose to work it 12 hours a day and not feed it or water it the way you said that it needed to be treated, then what happens if that animal dies? Well, that's on me, right? That's a clear case of negligence. If, though, the owner was there when the animal was injured or died, let's say you're standing there and the owner is right beside you watching you overwork his animal, watching you mistreat his animal, and he doesn't say anything or take the animal back, or if the animal just falls over dead because he's in the course of doing what he's doing, what he was hired for, then again, that creates a different um, scenario because the owner was there and the owner could have and should have stepped in and made sure that nothing happened to his own animal. So you see all these, the detail in these provisions. You know, if the owner walked away for an hour or so and came back and the animal was dead, that's much different than had he been standing there able to see exactly what was going on. Now, beginning at verse 16, we encounter the sundry laws We don't use that word really very much today, but the word sundry just means various. Uh, The word sundry uh, actually refers to things that are thought to be too insignificant in their own right to be categorized specifically. Sundry laws are laws, they're catch-all laws. They're laws that uh, I've already stipulated what governs this and this and this. And the sundry laws govern everything else, right? And so we have a few of those uh, here. In verse 16, for example, we read, If a man seduces a virgin who's not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. 
If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. I don't know how to put this very delicately, but let me just say this. Robbing a woman of her chastity and reputation would cost a man considerably, as it should today. You young men, you need to know, control yourself. Why? Because it honors God. Because it's what God expects from you. We live in such a sexually charged society today. A society where even among professing Christians, there seems to be little care for what God expects of us in terms of our conduct, male and female. Now, don't get me started on the other classifications that are not Christian. But in the realm of relationships, even among professing Christians, we seem to have an uh, attitude of flippancy, an attitude that, well... You know, God will forgive this. Uh, God will overlook this. Or my all-time favorite, but pastor, we're in love. Men, if you're in love, put a ring on it. Right? If you're in love, then marry that woman. And then proceed doing whatever you do. Don't get the cart before the horse. God says, don't do that. That's what's being taught here, by the way. In fairly genteel language, the Lord wants the people to know that there are consequences, men, when you take from a woman what should be the most precious thing in her possession, her virginity. And I know we don't talk about things like this. This is, you know, oddly enough, we talk about every other sexual perversion known to man, and we do it, you know, with with little shame. Folks, we need for this to be a staple within the body of Christ. This should be understood. Especially by you young men. And yes, it might sound chauvinistic. Well, the women have a part to play in this too. Yeah, they do. But let me just let you in on something. If the man refuses, nothing's going to happen. Right? It takes two to tango. I realize that. But who bears the responsibility? The man bears the responsibility. Why? Because, like it or not, God created them male and female, and he created the woman to be underneath the headship of a godly man. That's the way God designed it. He didn't create Eve first and then Adam. He created Adam first and then Eve. And he did it for a very specific purpose. So that, ideally, women would feel protected. Women would feel cherished and loved. Young men, hear me now. If you really love a girl, then the last thing you'll want to do is be guilty of robbing her. The last, that should be unthinkable to you. And in the case of the Israelites... God made it unthinkable because if you do that in that economy, God says you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it. How much? Well, you're going to pay the equivalent of a dowry. Now, dowries were usually paid by the father of the woman to the husband 
kind of as a good faith gesture, we're going to help you guys out as you embark on this marriage. We're going to make sure that you have a good starting point. So a woman would bring a dowry from her family to her new husband. In this case, though, the dowry was to be paid by the man for what he had done in robbing her of her chastity. Now, how much would that be? You're talking about some pretty hefty sums back in in this particular day. It could be like way up there in terms of not just money, but possessions. And for the average Israelite, this could mean paying for years, paying the father off for what you had done to his daughter. That's how seriously the Lord takes this. As one commentator noted, in God's world, there is no such thing as a one-night stand with no accountability. In God's world, you're accountable. Well, before we move on to verse 18, let me just say this final word to both young men and women, if you're not married. If you're not married, the type of relations described here are and forever shall be off limits. Don't even think twice about it. And you might be sitting there already married thinking, well, you know, worked out for us. Only by God's grace. Only by God's grace. And I can tell you this. You didn't come away from it unscathed. You might not realize that now, but there will come a day when you realize that you should have waited. Right? I know it's not cool today. You know, the whole wait until marriage thing, it's just not cool. Well, you shouldn't care nearly as much about being cool as you care about being obedient to the Lord. Just be obedient. And if you're not unequally yoked, if you're both believers, help each other. How do you do that? Well, you don't put yourself in compromising positions. Right? You don't go places where it's just the two of you and all kinds of shenanigans can happen. Oh, but we're strong. No. I've never met a man yet who's stronger than his own hormones. Be careful. Be very careful. Women, that applies to you too. Why? Because God expects it. Verse 18. Another sundry law. Here the Lord says you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Now, some of you might be wondering why the female form of the word is used here and not the male. Why the Lord doesn't say you shall not allow sorcerers or sorceresses to live. Right? And this is another bit of ammunition that a lot of people like to use to, to make that fallacious claim that, you know, the writers of the Bible were chauvinistic. Jews hated women, and that's why it says sorceress and not just sorcerer and sorceress. There's actually a much better reason for the use of the word sorceress here. First of all, it is the female variation of the noun. Nouns, just like in Greek, have uh, male, female, and 
gender-neuter forms. In this case, it's the female. Why? Because females were known to practice the dark arts with much more frequency than males. Witches were much more common than warlocks. Witches were practicing the dark arts really in fulfillment of the curse that was placed on them by God in the garden. Remember there where it says your desire shall be for your husband? That's not a good thing. That simply means that you're going to want his position. You're going to want to exert your authority over him. You're going to want to supplant his roles and responsibilities and assume those for yourselves. This is why we have so much difficulty in the world around us today with with understanding male and female roles, which, by the way, are, are not egalitarian. They're complementarian. God made Eve to be a helpmeet, a, a completer for Adam. Not that they would be equal. But in understanding that, then it helps us to see why women were so intent on engaging in the dark arts. They thought that the dark arts gave them a leg up against the men. They thought that if they could be perceived, or even in reality, dabbling in demonic things then the men would fear them more. The men would look at them as oracles that they could go to. I don't know if you're fans of Greek and Roman mythology, but you'll notice that most of the oracles are female, right? A lot of the goddesses are the strongest in the pantheon of gods. Why? Because, again, they established this paradigm as a way of allowing women to appear to be more powerful than their male counterparts. And so even in Israel, the dark arts, which were undoubtedly learned from the Egyptian women, many women became sorceresses and witches. Now, let's just be clear here. There are places in Scripture where this applies to both men and women. In Leviticus 20, verse 27, for example, we read, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14, we read this, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That was common then, right? Uh, Which, by the way, how many of you have ever been to like motivational retreats at work and team building and things like that, right? Sometimes you go to those things and they have the fire walk. You ever seen that? Where you walk across the, the coals? And you might think to yourself... Oh, yeah, you know, I'd never do that, but I could see where that would be a great team-building exercise, right? You know, you make it through to the other side. I mean, you're on cloud nine. You're like, yoo-hoo, man, I'm a cut above. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be the best salesman in this company next year because I walked across hot coals. I'm not sure how that equates, right? (laughs) I'd say you should be the first to be fired because you do something as stupid as walking across a bed of hot coals. In Tim's world... You'd be fired. 
right? But you need to know that things that look and sound innocent like that, walking through fiery coals is actually rooted in occult practices, right? I mean, this, is, this was an ancient ritual to uh, appeal to the gods that would ensure fertility and virility. This was something that was meant to uh, invoke the gods' ability to grant you specific supernatural power. Nowhere in Scripture does it even hint that we should walk across hot coals. In fact, like we're reading here, right? There should be none found among you who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, and here the male form is used, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the, uh, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Israel was, again, expected to be separate and distinct from the world around them. They were not to dabble in things that were deemed unholy. They were not to participate in practices that were known to be practiced by the pagans. They were not to be in a position where there might be any confusion between them as a separate, unique people of God. A picture, again, foreshadowing. But they were not to place themselves in compromising positions where there could be confusion as to whether or not they were God followers or like the populace around them. This is why we're commanded, even throughout the New Testament, to be separate, to be holy as he is holy. Jeremiah 27, 9 and 10. But as for you, Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers. Once again, the male form is used here. Those who speak to you saying you will not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you uh, far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. The bottom line here is that God prohibits sorcery in all of its forms. God doesn't want us to dabble in those things, even if they're seemingly innocent. Right? I remember the lure um, that I felt for years when I was really heavily involved in martial arts. I remember uh, some of the things that my uh, sensei would say as far as philosophy and And talking about, you know, centering my chi and talking about the earth forces around me that I could tap into and all of this stuff. I remember as a young Christian not being able to reconcile a lot of these things with what I believe because, I mean, if you're in martial arts, if you've ever been in martial arts, the most respected person that is in your life is your sensei, your your instructor. And this was a man that I highly respected, uh, loved dearly. Uh, Because he was also very good. He was kind of like a Mr. Miyagi to me uh, for about seven years when I was taking martial arts. And 
But one of the reasons that I subsequently found a Christian martial arts studio was so I didn't have that, that constant tension. You know, you might think, well, it, it really shouldn't be that bad if you're a believer. Well, it is. It's, it's alluring. It's, it's, it's mystical because all you're hearing is about the ancient roots of your discipline and, and all the great heroes who, who, you know, you're almost like, it's almost like a church for all intents and purposes. And it, it's very much like a family, you know, and, and you get really sucked into that. And some of you might say, well, I don't do martial arts. I don't intend to do martial arts. But what about yoga? You realize yoga is occultic. Oh, but I love my yoga. Well, you might love to do yoga. But you can do all those things without thinking about your yogi, without thinking about all of these extraneous pagan roots. I mean, we can all stretch to our heart's content using techniques found in yoga, but it's also very easy for people to get sucked into the philosophy, right? And we need to avoid things like that. What about horoscopes? Anybody ever look at your horoscope? Yeah, just for fun. There's nothing fun about it. It's demonic. It's opening yourself up to a voice that is not God's voice. It's allowing people to influence your moods and your behaviors who have no business or no authority or no ability to do that. All in the name of astrology. Some of you might like the fortune cookies that you get at Panda Express, right? You open it up and... You look at it, and there's nothing wrong. Folks, there's nothing wrong. Look at it. But don't walk away despondent when it says that you're going to meet someone special today, and you go to bed that night, and it didn't happen. I didn't meet anybody special today. Just calm down, Turbo. <laughs> there's nothing in that cookie that's going to tell you anything about your life. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work through occultic means. Leviticus 19.26 is another text. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. Soothsaying was being able to predict the future. Which, by the way, this is why I reject eschatological dogmatism. Right? If the Lord Jesus Christ himself says no man knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man, that's enough for me. Now again, I can have a biblically informed opinion on when I think it might happen, but I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. There's going to be a lot of people surprised when they hear the trumpet blast and up they go and it doesn't match with their eschatology. I'm going to save you some heartache now. You're probably all wrong. I'm wrong, probably, on one or several aspects of my own eschatological system. Which is why I say, live today for the Lord. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's not even a reality. 
much less five years from now. Think about how much time is wasted looking under every rock for this sign and that sign. By the way, who did Jesus say looks for signs? The Jews. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? It was a bad thing. Now, why would Jesus say that? He said that because these were a people who were preoccupied with all the wrong things. Your preoccupation should be when you wake up tomorrow morning, should you wake up tomorrow morning, when you wake up before your feet hit the floor, you should ask the Lord, Lord, help me this day to live in a way that honors and glorifies your name. And then when you go to bed that night, thank him for allowing you to live another day in which you were able to honor and glorify his name. And then what do you do the next morning? The same thing. Worry about today. Well, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious for anything. Tend to the needs of today. Behave in a godly manner. And don't worry about next year, next week. Remember what James says? Don't say that tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and we'll do such and such and thus and such. He says, you you don't even know that that is going to happen. But say, if the Lord wills. Don't get hung up on the future. There's no future really there. Is there? I know some people were rattled um, a couple of weeks ago when I, I... I didn't mean to embarrass anybody. When I asked for a show of hands, how many people believe that God can see the future? Some hands went up, and then I just kind of body slammed them and said, no, God doesn't see the future because in his realm there is no future. It's just a constant now. We're all living through God's preordained plan, right? So I say that because looking into the future or even attempting to look into the future is absolutely futile for that one reason. God has it all planned out. There's nothing you can do to prevent what's going to happen. There's nothing that you can do to escape what's going to happen. It's all going to happen according to his plan. And that's comforting to me, right? Uh, Leviticus 19.31, don't turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 26, uh, 20 verse 6, as for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and I will cut him off from among his people. Finally, in Micah 5.12, the Lord says, I will cut off sorceries from your land and you will have fortune tellers no more. So why was sorcery to be punished by death? That seems kind of extreme, right? I mean, I was just playing with the Ouija board. What's, you know, that's deserving of death? Yes. Why? Because those things have their origin in Satan. There's no way that you can sufficiently explain your involvement in the occult even if it's just curiosity, because you're dabbling in the things of Satan. And those things should be left alone. Sorcery involves making contact with the spirit world in a way that excludes God himself. 
and instead appeals to unholy sources. Sources that are bent only on your soul's destruction. It's actually the epitome of idol worship. And we know that God has zero tolerance for idol worship. Ligon Duncan said this. He said, sorcery is a challenge to the sovereignty and providence of God. It's either an attempt, in some cases, to know the future that God has prepared, or in other cases, it's an attempt to manipulate the future that God has prepared. In other cases, it's an attempt to usurp his sovereignty and providence over his people by doing harm to people through magic. And therefore, it's a challenge to God and was considered a capital crime in Israel. Again, many of the Israelites learned sorcery from the Egyptians. They were well known for practicing the things that are referenced here. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, that's all well and good, but I'm really in no danger of falling into this category because I don't practice any of these things. But you need to be very careful because these things, these things can take on really subtle forms. And we've seen this even in recent years among Reformed Christians. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody hear of the Enneagram? The Enneagram? Depends on where you put the, what syllable you put the emphasis on, right? But the Enneagram that swept through churches that should have known better, uh, in case you're not familiar with that, the Enneagram is really uh, not unlike the Briggs-Myers personality inventory. Anybody take the Briggs-Myers for a job? or Yeah. You take the Briggs-Myers and they'll tell you who you are. I used to give the Briggs-Myers test to high school students um, as recently as a couple of years ago, and there's nothing wrong with the Briggs-Myers thing. It really kind of, it's designed to tell you what you'd be best at. But I used to tell the students, be sure that you answer not in a way that you see yourself, but answer honestly. If you want good results from this, answer honestly, and this test is going to help you Focus your energies on the things that you're best at, right? Nothing wrong with that. There, there's nothing wrong with that unless it's carried too far. Unless it's carried to an unholy extreme. Well, the Enneagram did just that. Um, the Enneagram, as one explanation puts it, is meant to be a tool that frees us from the false self and opens us up more deeply to the transforming work of God's Spirit. You see how subtle that could be? Pastor stands up and says, okay, guys, we're all going to participate in this thing. It's called the Enneagram, and it's really just designed to help us put to death the old man and experience fullness of life according to God's Holy Spirit. Who wouldn't want that? Right? Responding to this description... One astute believer wrote this. This is absurd. God's word is all sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.17 is absolutely clear that nothing apart from God's word is needed for the Christian to grow in godliness. To imply otherwise is to declare God's word to be insufficient. No Christian should seek to be transformed by anything but God's spirit through God's word. Anything else is idolatry. Absolutely true. 
So if anyone comes to you in the name of the Lord, if anyone comes to you in the interest of growing more in the image of Christ, growing in your faith, all these things, and they present to you anything other than the rightly divided, responsibly taught word of God, then you are to reject that thing. I don't care what it is. And this would include probably about 70% of all the so-called self-help books that litter our Christian so-called bookstores. Most of them are just psychobabble wrapped in Christian language. Most of them are rooted in pagan psychological, pseudo-psychological principles that sound noble, they sound good, but really it's just Satan dressed up as the angel of light. We need to understand that. There is no substitute for the Word of God. In 2018, Kevin DeYoung, some of you know uh, or know of Kevin DeYoung, he wrote an article and uh, he wrote this for the Gospel Coalition. The article was entitled Enneagram, The Road Back to You or to Somewhere Else. Listen to what he wrote about this because it's important. He said, after being used for several decades in Catholic retreats and seminars, the nine-type personality tool has seen an explosion of popularity in evangelical circles. Since 2016, evangelical publishers have released at least three full-length books on the Enneagram. The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, which was published in 2016 by InterVarsity Press. The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth, which was published by Zondervan in 2017. And Mirror for the Soul, A Christian Guide to the Enneagram, again published by InterVarsity Press. Beyond books, he says, the Enneagram continues to receive a warm reception on a number of blogs and evangelical media outlets with articles like what all Christians need to know about the Enneagram and the never-ending quest to know ourselves. In particular, Christianity Today, which I call Christianity Astray, right, has been a frequent advocate of the Enneagram, touting what the Enneagram has to offer Christians, how evangelicals can use it, and just recently how it can be a tool for pastors. On a personal note, I have good friends who swear by the Enneagram as the means by which God showed them their blind spots and helped them overcome weaknesses in their personality. So what should we make of this new or ancient personality wheel with a strange name? I'm not going to read the rest of the article. Go out there and read it for yourself. It's on the Gospel Coalition's website. Just look up Kevin DeYoung Enneagram. That's E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. The Enneagram. Um, just suffice it to say that, again, anything that supplants the Word of God, anything that, first of all, what is with this fascination to discover ourselves? Right? To find ourselves. To understand ourselves. I've said it before, I'll say it again this morning. Boldly and unashamedly. I'm going to give you a 60-second evaluation 
of your real self. Are you ready? Here's your personality wrapped up in a nutshell. This you can take to the bank. In your natural condition, you are a sinner. You are a wretch bound for hell. If you are redeemed by the grace of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are still one who deserves nothing but hell. It's just that you stand clothed in the righteous robes of Christ by the grace of God, who for reasons known only to himself, called you to himself, and now has given you his Holy Spirit to enable you to live and act in ways contrary to your original nature. You've been made a new creation in Christ, and yet you're the same wretch you've always been except with a rosier outlook for eternity. There's your personality test. And it should humble you. The Enneagram, the the other things that are used out there to promote your, your best you, to help you find yourself, to help you realize your full potential, all of those things run contrary to what the Scriptures say You are. Your identity as a believer is in Christ. You have been adopted into the family of God. You've been made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And it's only because your brother, your friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the credentials to help you to stand blameless before God the Father on that day. It's only because of him that you'll stand on that day. If you're outside of Christ this morning, I don't care how hard you look. I don't care whether you look high, low, somewhere in between. I don't care how many personality inventories you experience. I don't care what the Briggs-Myers test says about you. I don't care what the Enneagram says about you. You're a wretch. You need Christ. Oh, but that doesn't make me feel good. Thanks, Pastor. I came here this morning to church. I came here to be uplifted and to feel good about myself. You're in the wrong church. I guarantee you after the next hour, if you were his, you are going to feel really good about yourself in him. Romans 8, 35 through 39. It doesn't get any better than that, folks. Right? But again, if you're without Christ this morning, it shouldn't make you feel good. How should it make you feel? You should feel miserable after the 11 o'clock message this morning. If you're without Christ this morning, everything I'm saying about the absolute security of the believer, you have no part in that. You're missing out. You should feel like the wretch you are. And what should that do? That should compel you to cry out from the depth of your soul, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the only way truth is conveyed. That's the only way you'll ever get to know your real self is to look at yourself in the reflection of the Word of God. I know that's not popular. I know people reject that out of hand as being unkind. I'm not being unkind. The most loving thing I can say to you who are without Christ this morning is be reconciled to God. The most loving thing I can do is say, you don't have to go to hell. Because there's one who paid the price 
so that his children would not have to go to hell. Are you one of his children? I don't know. Maybe. I can tell you this. If you ask him to save you from the very depth of your soul, he will do that. Proving what? That you're one of his. See how that works? If you're an unbeliever, you're an enemy of God right now. You don't have to leave this place an enemy of God. You just have to care enough and be bothered enough by that proclamation to say, Lord, be merciful to me. To ask, Lord, did you die for me too? Again, this Enneagram, it was well established in the occult. Listen to this list of people who have taken credit for the Enneagram. The Kabbalists. You know what Kabbalah is, right? Kabbalism. It's a branch of Judaism that's rooted in mysticism and the occult. Sufi mystics. The Chaldeans. I don't want to be involved with them, right? In its modern form, the Enneagram was brought out of the dustbin of pagan history by well-known occultists. The person most responsible for the renewed interest in the Enneagram is a guy named Oscar Icazo, who claimed to have discovered its power of defining personality types through the teaching of an archangel named Metroton. It sounds like Megatron, doesn't it? I wonder if Metroton had a really big head. Anyway, Oscar said that he had this encounter with Metroton while he was high on mescaline. <laughs> That'll do it, right? If you know, you know. No, I'm just kidding. Not long after this discovery, the Enneagram spread to Roman Catholic communities, then to Protestant circles, which again included a bunch of Reformed churches. How can that happen? People who should know better. I mean, of all people who have a grasp on doctrine and the scriptures, shouldn't we be extra wary of these things? We should be. How does something like the Enneagram make its way into even otherwise solidly Reformed churches? It happens when you let your guard down. It happens when someone you trust says, this is fun, this is new, this is innovative, this is exciting, and people just jump on the bandwagon. We need to be very careful. I'm all for finding new, fresh, exciting ways of living out our faith. As long as those things don't involve unbiblical solutions. Well, next week we're going to pick up at verse 20. You might be thinking, yeah, but you didn't cover verse 19. That's intentional. Just read it, and you'll understand why I'm not going to go there. Right? Not going to talk about bestiality this morning. Nope. Or next week. And parents, heaven help you if your kids have questions about what that means. Until next time.